I hope you have your Bibles with you. If you do, if you would open them up to Mark chapter 7. And while you're doing that, let me, um, let me say thank you to Pastor Matthew and Pastor Tim for filling the pulpit uh, very, very ably the last two weeks. And um, it feels like I've been gone for a month, but i um, glad to be back. We're not going to be in Nehemiah tonight, obviously, or this morning. We'll be back there, Lord willing, next week. But Mark chapter 7, our main passage is going to be the passage uh, that encompasses the verses 24 through 30. But we're going we're gonna to have to go back and look a little bit before we get to those verses to see what's happening. Here's my favorite line of any movie that I've ever seen. I'm going to give you it in two parts because it's a, a long, it's a long saying somewhat. But I'm going to give it to you in two parts. It's my favorite movie line. See if you can guess where it's from. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like. Some of you don't like Tolkien because you have no idea what I'm saying. Fellowship of the Ring, Bilbo's Toast. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like. I love that. It's a little bit of an abstract. But here's the second part of what he says. And I want to see if this fits you. I think it fits a lot of us. And I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. So here's, here's the whole line. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like. And I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Here's my question for us this morning. We're going to use that as a way to get our minds together. Interacting. Remember, you come to the sermon and you engage, you put it into gear, you get your mind working, you can't put it into neutral, you'll never profit from preaching. You don't approach the Word of God that way during the week, you can't approach worship or preaching that way either. So as we put our minds in gear, let me ask you, how well do you love difficult people? I really was going to say something, Ken, but I'm growing as a pastor and as a man of God. How well do you love difficult people and how well do you give mercy to people that are hard to love? Let's just really be honest. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do right at the beginning, and you're going to hold this in your mind during the sermon. You ready? Whose face comes to mind when I ask you, who is it in your life that you're having a really hard time loving. Now, whose face popped up? Don't argue with your mind. If you just had a face pop up, you just got to hold it there. Maybe it's that neighbor who seems to find weekly ways to annoy you. Or that young person that's full of piercings and tattoos, and you just never thought that that was very good to get. Maybe that former inmate, you know that they had a prison sentence, or that addict, or that boss that you don't like that just seems to mistreat you, that co-worker that is difficult to work with. Maybe even it's an elderly parent. Could be your ex, could be that person that broke your heart, or that person who smeared your reputation, gossiped and slandered about what's not true in your life. Who is it that you're having a hard time showing mercy to, let that face come to your mind 
and be a discipline of the Word of God and hold it there, even if it's uncomfortable. And as you're holding that in your mind, now you're going to multitask. Let's go to verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one right in front of you. Let's all get them out. Let's be people of God's Word. And here's what it says. And from there, He, that's Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Here's what it says. Jesus arose and went away. Now listen, He's moving. He is in action. And if you're really going to understand this passage, you can't really get it unless you understand where he came from. Where is he leaving needs to be part of what frames where he's going. Listen, this is what you do when you read the Word of God. When you're studying it Monday, Tuesday, through the week, in the morning, in the evening, maybe on your lunch break, and you, and you read from there... Uh, he arose and went away. You've got to stop and you've got to look back and see, well, where is he gone? Where is he leaving? Where is he gone from? Well, if you look in the end of chapter six, you'll find out that he is in the, the region of Gennesaret. You know where Gennesaret is? Well, if you don't know where it is, just Google it. Everybody has access to the Internet. Just Google it and you're going to find out. It's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. It's in the region of Galilee. He's leaving Gennesaret and a lot of things were happening. People just touching his clothes and they're getting healed. Can you imagine that? We have people in our church who have spreading cancer. People who are in intense chemotherapy. We have people who are not expected to live very long. Can you imagine they're just going to go and they touch his cloak? And healing power of God courses through their lives and their bodies. But then you get to chapter 7 and you read verse 1 that the Pharisees gathered to him with some scribes who had come from Jerusalem. And you might have in your mind this awful connotation of the Pharisees. Pharisees equal for you horrible people. And that's really not the case. In fact, Jesus, through his ministry, showed more respect to the Pharisees than he did to the Sadducees, to the Essenes, to the Zealots. They're the people in power. They're Pharisees and they're some scribes and they're Jewish lawyers. Scribes take the law and they extrapolate it. They teach it. They fence it in. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But you've got these Pharisees and you've got these scribes and they, they're coming to him. They've come from Jerusalem. And listen, they're angry with Jesus. They're offended. And we know why. Because it says right in the text, his, his disciples, some of them, were eating with unwashed hands. Now, you ready? We're in 2012. This doesn't really make sense. So they're germaphobes. I mean, they're worried about dirt on their hands and this is what's offending them. No, it goes a lot deeper than that. It goes right to the core of their religion. They're washing with impure hands, not germ-ridden fingers, but unclean, spiritually unclean hands. And it's offending them. Well, you've got to back up in your mind. You've got to realize the Old Testament commanded priests. You've got to get to the bronze laver. The bronze laver, ladies, was made out of the mirrors of the women. They didn't have glass. They had highly polished bronze. 
You can see a little bit of your reflection, not enough to be detailed, but you can see enough to see how you looked. And they would give these, these looking glasses to the, um, the metal workers and they melted it down. They made this large water holding bronze pot. And it's where the priests would go to wash their hands before they ministered the sacrifices and the worship. And that was a command. It was not a command for you and I. It wasn't a command for all the Jews. It was a command for the priests. Yet the devout and the pious Jews began to teach, no, everybody needs to be ritually clean. And so they began to get these large water jars and the jars of water. It was water for only one purpose. It wasn't for anything cooking. It wasn't for anything else other than to make you clean before God. You've got to clean your hands with that holy set apart water they believed. In order to be fit for worship. So here's some of these disciples that are now eating. And they're eating with impure hands. And they're not in the Pharisees and scribes' minds. And they're no longer fit to be serving God. They're unclean. They're defiled. In fact, one rabbi taught this. Listen, this is amazing. Whosoever has his abode in the land of Israel. That's fancy for saying if you live in Israel and eats his common food with rinsed hands, may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life. Did you hear that? If you rinse and wash your hands with this pure water, this rabbi taught you've gotten eternal life. And what, it, what develops is this incredibly complex system. So complex, listen, in the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the compilation, the written coding of all of the oral laws, the oral teaching. It was the written compilation. It came out in 200 AD. 35 pages were written in the Mishnah how to clean your cooking and daily implements with ritually clean water. That's how severe this had become. And the most religious of them washed before every meal and then they would wash between each course and the meal. And if you're a really pious, religious Jew, then you washed after the meal was done. And the way that you did it was simply this. You would take a servant and you would hold your hands up and the servant would take one log. A log of water was one and a half eggshells and they would pour it down your fingers. It would run down your hand and run off of your wrist. And then you would take your right fist and clean your palm and your left fist and clean your other palm. But now that water was defiled so the servant would take another one and a half eggshells of water and now with your hands down they would pour it from your wrists and let the water drip off of your fingers and now and only then were you ready to eat with pure hands in fact some of the rabbis taught that there was a demon the demon's name was shabbat and shabbat when you slept would sit on your hands and when you got up in the morning and you go to eat your breakfast you would transfer Shabbat into your mouth and go down into your heart. You could be possessed by a demon. So even, even in the morning when they woke up, they would clean their hands with this water from these jars. And all of this complex system and all of these teachings were going on. And here comes Jesus and his disciples and they sit down to eat and their hands have not been poured over with this water. In fact, in verse 4, look what it says. The Pharisees and scribes, they do not eat unless they 
wash. That word wash is baptizo. It's what we do in the summer when you immerse somebody down below the water and bring them up. Even some of these priests would not even eat until they took an entire bath in this water. Why? Because they might have touched a Gentile. They might have touched a Samaritan. They might have touched someone who had touched a dead body or a woman who was in her menstrual cycle. Any of these things, they believed, rendered them unclean before God and unfit to serve Him. And here comes Jesus. Now listen. Who had no regard, none, For these traditions, that's the word, these traditions, these oral add-ons to the law. He had no regard. He sweeps them aside and he begins to teach and mark. You can follow it. He begins to teach and mark that the problem's not that your hands are unclean. The problem is that your hearts are unclean. What makes you fit before God, what makes you... Able to worship God and approach Him and climb the hill of worship is not when you've bathed your hands or your body with ritual water. It's when your heart has been made clean. And he says in verse 6, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They do all of these ritual cleanings. They do all of these traditions. Listen, there's 613 commands that the Pharisees had. Now listen, you think that's bad? There's subcategories in each one of those. There's a near infinite tradition, amount of traditions. And they began to build around the Word of God a fence. And this fence was their oral traditions. Their their intent was noble. They didn't want people to break and distort and pervert the Word of God. So they put a protection barrier around it. But that barrier had become more authoritative than the Word of God itself. They began to preach and teach the, the barrier, the fence, the traditions, rather than the Word of God. Jesus, in verse 17, he's teaching that the contagion of defilement is internal. It's not external. It's in your heart. It's not on your hands. It comes from personal, sinful desires, not contact with other people. But I want you to see verse 17, and now we're pressing toward our passage. And when he had entered the house and left the people, I want you to see this, underline this in your mind. You ready? His disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? That's a nice way of saying, you don't get it either. Now listen, this is now year three of Christ's ministry. In fact, just before this, in his height of popularity, he preaches John 6. And John 6 is pretty hard sermon. And when people hear John 6, they begin to say, what is this? I don't want this. And they begin leaving Jesus in droves. And his disciples are going through this. Now listen, just think that you're in a church and then all of a sudden it's exploding. And it's exciting. And the Word of God is being preached. But then all of a sudden something happens and people begin leaving and they begin exiting and 
and vast numbers in the church is dwindling. Now you know your frustration with the leadership. Now you know your difficulty in, in, in accepting what's happening. This is what's going on in the disciples. And Jesus is saying, you've been with me for two and a half years, and you don't get this even any better than the Pharisees. Can I remind you of something? Those disciples are the church's first pastors. This is it. This is the leadership of the early church. And if they don't get that sin is a heart problem and not an external problem and that God has a solution for it that's way deeper than water, if they don't get it, they're never going to be able to bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. So Jesus is going to open their eyes. And I believe it's the sole reason. Well, it's not the sole. It's one of two reasons he takes them on this short-term mission trip of what we're about to study. You know, I had an eight-year-old years ago. His mother called me and said, would you please come over and talk to my son? I don't know why. He just needs to talk to you. He won't tell me. So I go over there. I sit down in a room and I, and I say, well, what can I do for you? I'm glad to be here. What, what do you need help with? He says, well, all I know is that I can see that in my heart, Remember, this is an eight-year-old. I feel like in my heart, there's like a foot of, he goes like this, like a foot of dirt. And God has a vacuum cleaner, but I don't know how to get it to work. I don't know how to get this out of my heart. It's an eight-year-old. I get the luxury. Listen, you ever go in an apple orchard and you go to pluck an apple and it literally seems to almost fall off before you even pull on it? This is fruit ready to be plucked. I mean, pastors dream for this. Some of you are so obstinate and stubborn, it's taxing. <laughs> Man, eight-year-old, tell me how to get the dirt out of my heart. He understood better than the Pharisees and the disciples. His heart was the problem. And God has a vacuum cleaner, and he turned it on on the cross, and it can wash your heart and clean you and make your heart new. The problem with sin is internal. It's not external. And so Jesus, in verse 19, declares all foods clean. Do you remember Acts? Do you remember Peter? Do you remember that sheet that is lowering down from heaven in that vision? And there's all sorts of unclean animals in it. And, and there's a voice that says, Peter, rise up, kill and eat. And he says, no way. No way. I don't touch anything unclean. He still didn't get what we're going to learn. Until God corrected him. Because God's about to send Peter to the Gentiles with the gospel. And he's going to be sending Paul to the Gentiles with the gospel until even that moment Peter said, no, the Gentiles are unclean. They're outside of the favor of God. They are not worthy of what Israel has. And I will not take it to them. Friends, the disciples, the early church, that great and unbelievable leadership team, they needed to understand this, what we're about to hear. So now we're in our text, in verse 24. He arose and he went away. Now we know where he's coming from, where he left. And they go to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are two famous cities in Phoenicia. They're populated by Gentiles. That's who lives there. They're populated by a people that the Jews viewed as unclean and cursed and ethnically defiled. It's about a 30-mile walk. You go west from Gennesaret and north. 
You hit the Mediterranean Sea and you go north. It is beautiful. It is mountainous. It's a trip to the shore. And immediately, verse 25, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Do you know what is likely going through the disciples? You can extract this if you dig deep enough. I'm going to show you where. You know what's going on? The disciples are saying, finally, a ministry break. Finally, a weekend off. Finally, we get away from the Pharisees. They're now plotting to kill Jesus. They're trying to undermine everything that he's saying, everything that he's doing. The opposition is becoming intense. And the disciples, finally, we get to go to the shore. We get to get away from it all. We get to rest. We get to refresh. We get Jesus to ourselves. This is going to be great. And all of a sudden, here comes this woman clamoring for help. Matthew hints at it. He's saying that they went away from there and withdrew. What are you withdrawing from? Matthew hints at it. Jesus did not want anyone to know. Mark's writing from Peter. Peter's the one that told Mark, Jesus didn't want anybody to know that we were there. Why? Because it's vacation time. It's like us who get to maybe our weekend after an intense week of work and seems like everything's going wrong and the stress is just incredible. And all you can think of is Friday night, Saturday and Sunday. And all of a sudden your boss calls middle of the night Friday and says, I need you to come in tomorrow. Listen, if you if you've experienced that, then you're likely now inside the shoes of the disciples. You're experiencing what they're experiencing. It's a ministry break. And they needed it. And all of a sudden, this needy woman shows up. And of all of her problems that it could be, here's her problem. She has a demon-possessed daughter. Remember what I just taught you? Shabbat, ready? Sits on your hands when you're sleeping and... When you eat with undefiled or with defiled hands, the demon comes in through your mouth and down in your heart. I mean, could he get worse than this? A woman whose daughter's possessed by a demon. And she falls at his feet begging for help. Now, let's, let's, let me help you get into the life of the woman now. It's really not very helpful to read the word of God antiseptically, you know, 2,000 years in the future. Can't gloss things over. What's it like to be this mom? Have you ever had your child suffering? And there's no way to relieve it. I don't mean their teeth are coming in. They're teething. I don't mean that level of suffering. That's bad enough. They're up all night crying. I mean, I, I get that, believe me. Our first child, I don't know what happened. He, he was really easy. Our second child had colic. Our third one had worse colic. That's why we didn't want a fourth one, but God said he wanted us to have a fourth one, and we can't live without him now. Our fourth one had the worst colic of them all. The only way to get Andrew to stop crying at 1 o'clock in the morning was for me to take our vacuum cleaner and turn it on. As soon as I turn it on, he'd stop crying. As soon as I turn it off, he'd start crying. You know how many motors we burned out in our vacuum cleaners? (laughs) 
I'm not talking about that level of suffering. Have you ever had your child suffering and suffering so terribly and there's no way for you to help? Can you even remember the last time that you fell before God and begged Him of anything? Can you remember that? Listen, for me, it wasn't very long ago. It was a particularly difficult period of ministry. My wife will tell you that she came back and found me. I don't do this very often. I'm on the edge of my bed and tears are just rolling down my face. And she says, honey, what is wrong? I said, I'm done. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Listen, I wasn't talking about leaving this church and going to another one. I know the grass isn't greener anywhere. I just was done with ministry. And I was begging God to release me. I would never quit before he released me, but I'm begging for his release. When's the last time you've begged God for anything? Now you're climbing inside this woman's heart. You know, the deepest grief that I in my entire life, certainly my pastoral 20 years, the deepest grief I've ever encountered was a grief of a mother whose son died and I did the burial, I did the funeral. And when the funeral was done and we were all ushered outside waiting for the casket to be carried out, we gave the mom and the dad a few minutes of time to grieve and as I'm the last one leaving the funeral home, other than the mom and dad, the last sight and the last sound I heard was the mother splayed out physically on the coffin in a piercing, wailing, weeping, convulsing cry. I said to myself, that's the deepest grief I think there is. I walked outside the funeral home. Here are dozens and dozens of people standing around. Nobody's talking. Hushed. Silent. Can you imagine the grief of this mother? Look at verses 25 again. She came and fell down at his feet and she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Literally, the Greek says, my daughter is badly demonized. The word begged is in the Greek tense, meaning continuously over and over and over and over. It's not a one-time plea for help. She is knocking on the doors of heaven and she's saying, God, I need help. My daughter is badly demonized. Will you help me? And what would Pastor Peter and what would Pastor John and Pastor James and the rest of that pastoral team, what would they do? Well, here's what they do. Matthew tells us in his gospel. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. Do you realize that word begged is the exact same begged of the woman? And it's in the same tense that she was begging continuously over and over. She's begging repeatedly. They're begging repeatedly. And it's not that difficult to understand why they felt this way. Look what Mark says in verse 26. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. So let's build a profile. Number one, she's a woman. Both Jews and Greeks viewed women as less and inferior to men. So she's already got that strike against her. And she's a Gentile. That means that to a Jewish mind, she is outside of the favor of God, outside of the willingness of Jesus to heal her daughter. 
And she's a Syrophoenician Phoenician by birth. She, did, she wasn't a Jew whose parents traveled there on business and they stayed and she just grew up there. This was a Syrophoenician by birth. She's, she's, she's a Roman. Rome, Rome was their captors. The Jews hated Rome. She was a Canaanite, Matthew says, one of the people that Israel was told to wipe off the planet in the Old Testament. And even worse, she's from Tyre. Listen, remember Jezebel in Elijah's day? Her father was the king of Tyre and Sidon. And it was Jezebel that brought Baal and Ashtra into Israel, that false worship. And the Greeks now changed Ashtra to Astarte. This woman was likely a devoted follower of Astarte. Listen, let's expand it a little bit more. Ready? Now, you've got to hang on to this one. If you're going to understand why the, why the disciples are begging Jesus to send her away, you've got to understand the mind of a Jew. Because pious Jews thought the Gentiles were created by God for fuel to use in hell. And to them, only Israel was loved by God. All the other nations he hated, it was, listen, it was against the law for a Jew to aid a Gentile mother in giving birth to a baby because then you'd be responsible for bringing a Gentile baby into the world. And if a Jew was traveling into Israel from Gentile territory, listen, they would stop They would shake the dirt off their feet because they would not bring unclean dirt into their holy land. If a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl married a Gentile, you know what they would do? They would hold a funeral at the same time because touching a Gentile in any way physically was tantamount to death. So to the disciples, this woman, Canaanite, Syrophoenician, Gentile mother of a demon-possessed child was probably the most unclean picture of humanity possible. The question I asked you, who is it most difficult for you to love? Well, this would have been it for the disciples. And yet, look what she's saying behind me in Matthew's account. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. It's a messianic title. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Listen, of all people... Who could possibly understand this woman's need for mercy? Wouldn't you think it'd be Peter? I mean, don't you remember Peter? He's in the boat with his brother Andrew and their fishing partners, James and John, were in their boat and they've been fishing all night and they're tired and they want to go home, clean their nets and go home. And here comes Jesus on the shore and he says, listen, guys, throw your nets one more time. They already knew Jesus. They hadn't been following him yet, but they'd hung around with him enough. They knew him, so they said, all right, Lord, if you say so, but we're not going to catch anything. And all of a sudden, their nets were so full of fish that when they began bringing them into the boat, the nets began to break, and Peter made his way to shore. When he landed on shore, he, this is what the text says, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I mean, who's going to get the need for mercy if it's not going to be Peter? Or Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Do you know that tax collectors were, were Jewish 
employees of Rome and they would extract the hated, demanding Roman tax. And then on top of that, they would skim even more. And they had the whole Roman army to back them up. Jews despised tax collectors. They used the phrase tax collector to say the worst things about people they hated. I mean, who's going to get the need for mercy if it's not Peter and it's not Matthew, yet they're all begging God, Jesus, to send her away? She's pleading for relief for her daughter. They're pleading for relief from her. She's crying out repeatedly for mercy. They cry out repeatedly for space. She is desperate. They're annoyed. She wants her daughter's life back. They want a break from ministry. And all of a sudden, the microscope begins to adjust right squarely on the disciples' hearts. Now listen, is it adjusting on yours yet? Listen, it has to adjust on yours. You've got to let the weight of the word of God settle on your shoulders and let the gracious hand of God guide the scalpel to your heart. Who do you find it most difficult to give mercy to? Mercy, that unmerited favor of God. Nobody deserves mercy. You can't barter for mercy. You can't say, God, here's my faithful church attendance. I was an Eagle Scout. Man, I do good things. I deserve your mercy. Mercy, by definition, is what you don't deserve. And so you get through the sheep gate of Nehemiah's wall and you get to the cross and all of a sudden you find, surprisingly, the ground's level. Nobody is further along than anybody else. Because we're all sinners and we've all fallen short of the word of the glory of God, the perfection, the holiness of God. Every one of us need to beg Jesus for mercy. Listen, if you've come to the cross and you bartered with God and you walked away thinking you've secured salvation, life, you're fooled, you're deluded. You cannot barter for salvation. It's a free gift. It always has been. The woman is begging Jesus to help. The disciples are begging Jesus to send her away. And it seems like they're right. Because look what Jesus, according to Matthew's doing. He did not answer her a word. In fact, it gets even worse. Mark, verse, verse 27 in Mark. Let the children be fed first, Jesus says to her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Doesn't that sound Harsh and heartless? Do you remember that woman in the funeral who is splayed upon the casket and she's weeping with convulsive tears and she's begging God for mercy? What if that was the woman and Jesus says, listen, it's not right to take my power and my gift of salvation and throw it to you? You're a dog. Look at her faith. Listen, this is why Jesus is going to say, Matthew records it, this woman's faith, it is great. Look at her response. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord, I am not worthy of your mercy. I am a dog. Yet I believe that you're willing to even give me a crumb. That's faith. 
That's belief. And it's tremendously helpful, friends. And don't ever forget this because you'll have opposition to the word of God. Throw this in your face. How could Jesus call her a dog? Do you know what that word dog is in the Greek? It's not the ravenous, unclean, wandering animal. This is the house pet. It's a puppy that's allowed into the home to share with the family. They're allowed to live under the table. In fact, they didn't have silverware then. They ate the sauces with chunks of bread. They would clean their fingers with chunks of bread and they would throw them onto the floor. And she's saying, I know that that we, this is what we do, that we clean our fingers with these chunks of bread and then we throw them on the floor for these house puppies to, to eat. And she says, I am a house puppy and I know that you've got enough bread to throw to me to help my daughter. She knows the gospel better than the disciples. Because the gospel is this, and it's written in Isaiah, I will make you, Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Why did he choose Israel? It wasn't because they were lovely. They were the most unlovely of the nations. He chose Israel, made them his, so that they would not be the end of salvation, but the means of salvation to the world. The the word of God and the gospel would go through Israel to the Gentiles all over the planet. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations so that you can open the eyes that are blind and set these prisoners free. This was the job of Israel. Paul explains it. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes. Listen, first for the Jew. Why? Because the gospel comes to the Jew and goes through the Jew then for the Gentile. Let the children be fed first, as Jesus is saying, right now, my door is wide open for my people because they've got to get it before they can give it. But my door is not closed to you. It's not closed to anyone with faith. I will show mercy on anyone who comes to me and asks. You know what's astounding? Now listen, if you thought all of this time for 39 minutes, 35 minutes, that you weren't caught up in this story yet, now it's the church's job. Who is the true Jew? It's anybody that's in Christ. Now the gospel has come to the church And the church is not the end of salvation. It's the means of salvation. It's the way, the vehicle, the conduit that God is bringing salvation to the uttermost parts of the planet. To that person that you find it difficult to love, that person that doesn't deserve your mercy, yes, you are the conduit for that person. You're the one that the gospel of mercy is to go to so that you can bring it to them. You know, the mission statement of our church, listen, you could visit 10 or 1,000 churches and you'll get 10 or 1,000 different mission statements. But there's only one mission. You can phrase it any way you want, and we did, and I'll tell you what it is. You can phrase it whatever you want, but there's only one mission, and it's been captured in Matthew. You've got to go and make disciples. You've got to rise up and leave. 
Ours is building strong believers in Jesus Christ through his word. There is no other agent. As we follow him into our community, what's your community? It's your your job. It's your neighborhood. It's your families. It's your workplaces. It's your schools and it's your colleges. It's your sports teams. It's your hobbies. And you follow him into them, into there. And as you follow Christ into there, you are sowing crumbs. You're sowing the gospel. That bread that came to you and saved you, that bread that came to you and drove you to the cross in utter level need of your salvation, now that bread needs to be sown to everyone else in crumb form or some form so that they can get it. Mercy is available. And if you're avoiding those people who are difficult to love, listen, you're avoiding the ones God's brought in your life to open your eyes to your need. Do you not see that in this story? Why do you think Jesus took them to Sidon and Tyre? It was to open their eyes the pastoral team of this church to show them you are withholding mercy to some people that you think are unclean, that you're not willing to love. And you'll never get my mission all around the world if you don't see you're as much in need as she is. Friends, we are saved by the gospel, Paul says. And listen, he says we're being saved by the gospel every day you are being saved by the gospel it's the power of god that sustains our faith it's the power of god that opens our eyes that we can see our need and that we're no better than anybody else and that the people who are difficult to love and difficult to show mercy to they're strategically put into our lives by our sovereign perfect god to help us learn how to love But Tim, you don't know what that person's done to me. You're right, I don't. But I know how perfect our sovereign God is. And if he has put that person in your life, he's teaching you to love and to give the bread of heaven toward. Are the words of Bilbo Baggins living in your heart? I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Listen, if that's you and you're following Jesus, he's going to take you to Tyre. He's going to bring you to people who are difficult, people that you think don't deserve God's mercy. He's going to teach you what he said in John 6. Whoever comes to me, I will never, ever drive away. So rise up, church. This is why we're multi-siding. This is why we're starting a church, top of the year, Lord willing, downtown Easton. So that we can take the bread to the people. We do it every day. Love the unlovely. Give mercy to those who you think don't deserve it. And watch what Jesus will do in your life. It will be amazing. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, we want to lift up your son. Father, we want to lift him up and exalt him. He is so wise.
He knew exactly what was in the disciples' hearts. He knew he said it to him. You still don't get it. Being unclean is a problem of the heart. It's not what goes into your body that makes you unclean. It's what's coming out. It's the desires that are raging and living it out, living them out in behaviors. Lord, help us to see that. Help us to see unclean people and love them and throw the crumbs of the gospel to them. Lord, give us that mission, every one of us, wherever we live, wherever we work. Help us to live like you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.